those of you that are visiting with us because it's a special Mother's Day, we are in, this is, I should say, now week number two of a five-week series we are doing on faith and work, faith and the marketplace. We've entitled it, as you have just seen, Redeeming Work. But because it's Mother's Day and because you mothers have such important and demanding work, with your children, grandchildren, and all that you have going on, I want as we go through this, talking about work in the marketplace, to especially today, and this will be more true at the end of my message, talk to you women about your role as mothers. Be making some comments as, as we go. Now here's why. I want you mothers to have hope. There is so much discouragement afoot today. I see this all the time in my role as a, a pastor. So much discouragement for women who are mothers. So much discouragement today in parenting. And I want to say to you, Jesus Christ is your greatest advocate, your greatest friend. And that is especially true in your darkest moments as moms. And there will be those dark moments. Let me mention a couple. It's baseball season, so let me mention a story from baseball. It was 1939 here in Chicago. One of the all-time great baseball pitchers, uh, Bob Feller, maybe not quite as good as Jake Arrieta, but really good, um, was pitching against, he was a Cleveland Indian, pitching against the Chicago White Sox. And uh, he threw this monster of a pitch, and the Chicago White Sox batter fouled it along the third base, uh, actually into the stands. Now, sitting in the stands was Bob Feller's mother, just above the third base dugout. And the ball that he had pitched, hit by the White Sox batter, hit Bob Feller's mom right in the face. And it was Mother's Day. 1939. Blackened her eyes. She had to have surgery. Make a long story short, uh, she was just fine. But isn't that sort of a metaphor for you mothers in some way? Uh, yeah, but, but when asked, how did that affect her relationship with her son, the famous Bob Feller? She said, well, what do you mean? It didn't affect it in any way. That's you mothers. You love and you love and you keep loving, even when we hit you as kids in the face. <laughs> My mother would say her darkest moment in raising us three kids took place when I was arrested and thrown into jail. Now, she was a single parent. And a couple years earlier, my, my father, who was an alcoholic, had been arrested and detained a couple of times. Now here goes her oldest son. That was a dark moment. A year and a half later, Jesus Christ totally changed my life. I mean, saved me. He saved me from becoming an alcoholic just like my father was. And I say that because I want to say to you mothers today, your hope isn't in the obedience of your children. It's in the obedience of Jesus Christ. It isn't in having a perfect marriage. 
It's in the perfect life and righteous, uh, the life and death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus. Your, uh, another way to say it is your hope as moms isn't found in your will, your agenda for your family or for life, but in submission to God's greater will, his greater, age, greater agenda, even when it differs dramatically from yours. Now having said that, I want today to talk about you in the marketplace, you and your vocation. And along the way, talk about the vocation called motherhood. And let me just say, if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, you're not sure what you think about Jesus, one of the fictions, great fictions about Christianity is that within Christianity, there is a major distinction between sacred and secular vocations. That's wrong. It's a lie. It's just not true. As a matter of fact, 500 years ago, the Protestant reformer Martin Luther expressed it so very well when he said, the man or woman who peels potatoes, that work is just as important and just as dignified as the priest serving at the altar. Now we think, how in the world can this be? Well, it can be because according to the New Testament, all of us, as believers, are priests. And God has saved us and called us and commissioned us to be God's servants in the world. Look at how Peter expresses it in 1 Peter 2.9. We looked at this verse uh, last week, but you are a chosen people, and here it is, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now, Peter is addressing the entire church. And he's using at the beginning of this verse four descriptors that described Israel in the Old Testament and applying them to the church. And so what Peter is saying to the church is to be a believer is to be a priest. You're a royal priesthood. What Peter is saying is everyone who knows Jesus Christ is in full-time ministry. And one of the main ways you minister, one of the primary ways you minister is through your vocation, through your work. Whether you're a painter or a police officer, or a school principal, or a pastor, or a stay-at-home mom. You see, when Luther talked about vocation, he was talking about our jobs, but he was also talking about your role as stay-at-home moms. He was talking about the important work you retirees do in the community or wherever. Or when you volunteer. Vocation is your job and vocation is your life. That's 1 Peter 2.9. You're a priest. To be a believer is to be a priest. Now let's take this uh, interesting step further. Look at what Tim Keller says in his excellent book on work, Every Good Endeavor. He writes, so how do we connect with what we do on Sunday morning with what we do during the rest of the week? How can we touch God in the world through our work? Quoting William Deal, he says, he answers that the very first way to be sure that you are serving God in your work is to be competent. 
When United Airlines Flight 811 got into trouble, now in 1989, 811 took off out of Honolulu, got to 22,000 feet, and the cargo door burst open, ripping a huge hole in the side of the plane, sucking out nine passengers, plunging them to their death. And so let's continue. The greatest gift Captain Cronin had for his passengers was his experience and good judgment. In those moments of peril, it mattered not to the passengers how the captain related to his co-workers or how he communicated his faith to others. The critical issue was this. Was he competent enough as a pilot to bring back that badly damaged plane in safely? And he did. Now the point is, through our work, we can touch God in a variety of ways. But if the call of the Christian is to participate into God's ongoing creative process, the bedrock of our ministry has to be competency. We must use our talents in as competent a manner as possible, in thousands of different ways, thousands of different vocations, thousands of different life callings. <laughs> Another way to say this is that your competency in whatever you do is a form of love. And one of the main ways you love your neighbors, one of the main ways you contribute to the good of your family, the good of your neighborhood, the good of your community, is through your competency, whether you're a mother, you're a manager, or a mail carrier. It doesn't matter. Your competency and your hard work. Uh, you women familiar with the Old Testament, you know this is the point of the Proverbs 31 woman. The wife of the noble character. But instead of going to Proverbs 31 this morning, I want to look at another, I think, amazing Old Testament story. A story of God and his interaction with Israel. So if you have your Bibles or you access them electronically, let's go back to the Old Testament and to the prophecy of Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah 29. Grab a Bible in front of you if you need to. It's page 785. Um, depending on the edition of those Bibles. And you talk as you're turning, let me say, you talk about a terrible job, a horrific assignment, a, 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 a brutal, discouraging job. Few had it as bad as the prophet Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, it was so bad, he was nicknamed the weeping prophet. He wept all the time about his work. What was his work? His work was year after year, decade after decade, to call Israel out of her sin and rebellion into repentance. And Israel refused. And by the way, let me just say parenthetically, some of God's choicest people like Jeremiah, are given very difficult, very hard assignments, uh, uh, jobs, life situations, where the results appear to be non-existent. But in ways we can't comprehend, God is working to glorify himself as he did in this situation with Israel. So when we come to chapter 29, because of Israel's sin, God had said, uh, enough. 
And he had allowed the brutal and the vicious Babylonians to come in and completely destroy Israel and to take the remaining Jews that were still alive, including Jeremiah, into captivity into Babylon. Now, Babylon was both a city and an empire. Now, we call this the Babylonian captivity or the Babylonian exile, and it lasted 70 long years. But no one, not even Jeremiah, saw coming what God says here in chapter 29. Let's pick it up in verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the remaining prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now let's skip down to verse 4, the text of the letter. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, now at this moment, Jeremiah is not in Babylon. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Now, uh, Jeremiah is not saying go ahead and intermarry. He's saying marry among the Israelites. But here we come to verse 7. Look at verse 7. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Now, the Babylonians were one of the most wicked, despicable cultures in all of human history. And from the beginning of the Bible with the Tower of Babel, all the way through the book of Revelation, Babylon epitomizes evil. Babylon epitomizes all that is against God. It is the epitome of a culture built on violence, narcissism, arrogance, atheism. Yet here in verse 7, God calls Israel, the, the, the Jews living in Babylon, not to attack, not to despise, not to withdraw, not to flee, but to seek the peace and the prosperity the shalom, the flourishing of this wicked culture. This is like being captured today in North Korea or Iran. Some pronounce it Iran. Pick the country. And you're getting a letter from God and God's saying, hey, just settle down. Make these people your friends. And seek the good of the country. Uh, here God is messing, messing with Israel's head. Here God is messing with our head. As God reveals the complexity of his plan in a fallen world. And this is what theologians, by the way, call common grace. What is common grace? Common grace is God's gracious provision for all people whether they believe in God or not, whether they're 
Babylonians or Israelis? So here God calls Israel to be a blessing to this wicked, brutal country of Babylon. At first blush, it makes no sense. Now, scholars use this to talk about two different perspectives relative to how we think about and how we engage culture, how we engage the marketplace. One perspective is what's called the Jerusalem perspective, which refers to the golden age of Israel under King David and King Solomon, when all the nations of the world used to come to Jerusalem to marvel at the splendor of Jerusalem. It was a period of un unprecedented security and prosperity for Israel. The second perspective is here. It's not the Jerusalem perspective, it's the exilic perspective where Israel is forced to live as immigrants, refugees, and exiles in a pagan, pagan, hostile kingdom. And what does God say? Well, he says in verse 7, seek the peace and the prosperity of the very people that destroyed your country. (laughs) So how do we as Christians relate to culture? How do we relate to to, to work in in a sinful, fallen world? Well, with the Jerusalem perspective, we expect the world to come to us. We expect the world to conform to our values, our ways, our thinking. And we're surprised and disappointed when that doesn't happen. But with the exilic perspective, as exilic disciples, we recognize we live in a hostile foreign culture, world. And so we must go into it to seek to redeem it. Uh, With the Jerusalem perspective, uh, we're all about comfort and, and, and security, but with the exilic perspective, it's discomfort, it's insecurity, it's, it's difficulty. Because we're surrounded by people that disagree with us. People that look at life very differently than us. Now what is fascinating about these two very different perspectives and this one here in Jeremiah is that when we come to the New Testament, what we discover is that it's this this exilic perspective that describes the church. So look at 1 Peter 2 again, but let's pick it up in verse 11. Peter says, I urge you as foreigners, and here it is, as exiles. Peter calls each and every one of us in the church an exile. uh, To abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong because they will disagree with you and there's no way you can please them all the time. They may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And so the metaphor that describes the church in both the world and at work isn't Jerusalem discipleship, it's this exilic discipleship. But instead of being forced into exile like Israel was forced into Babylon, when we come to Christ, we choose to live as an exile. Now, let me line this out a minute. Look at this chart. 
The Jerusalem perspective is, hey, we're the dominant culture. Everybody needs to bow to us. The exilic is very different. No, 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 no. We're the minority culture in Babylon. The Jerusalem is, well, we're a kingdom within a kingdom. Exilic, no, an alien kingdom. Comfort and security dominate the Jerusalem perspective. Discomfort and insecurity if you're in exile. With the Jerusalem, it's an inward, it's about us orientation. With the exilic, it's the opposite. We're here to seek the peace and the prosperity of a hostile culture. Then there's this triumphalist attitude, a lot of that in evangelicalism. But with the exilic, it's different. It's a, it's a servant attitude. I talked about that last Sunday. Now, here's what I want to do with the balance of my message. I want to wrestle with this question. How does this exilic perspective here in Jeremiah 29 relate to work, relate to the marketplace, relate to our vocations, whatever they are, in the home, out of the home, in retirement, as a volunteer? And I want to say three things. And the first is this. If we understand what's going on here in Jeremiah 29, picked up in the New Testament, then it clarifies expectations. It clarifies them. Because what Jeremiah 29 is telling us, First Peter is telling us, that this exilic perspective assumes difficulty. It assumes misunderstanding. It assumes challenges will be part, of parcel of, part and parcel of life. I mean, we're immigrants, we're refugees. So we may be disappointed, but we're not surprised. Now what this also means, if your goal in life is purely comfort and ease, to live, let's say, a cush life, then you, my friend, even though you love Jesus, you have lost sight of what it means to be in exile. So this is why I said a couple of weeks ago, quoting Paul Tripp, if God intended your life to be easy, it would be. <laughs> but you're in exile. So God intends your days to be tools of refinement, tools of testing not to deliver your personal definition of happiness, but to make you holy. Why? Why? So that you might engage the world as a believer priest, increasingly conformed to the image of Christ. So that you might engage the world like Christ, not disengage from the world. And one of the primary ways you do that is through your work, through your vacation, vocation, through your gifts but along the way you expect it will be difficult you will be unappreciated misunderstood we are Israel in Babylon now let me go on takeaway number two uh, what Jeremiah 29 coupled with the New Testament it tells us is it clarifies our role or our calling. Our role or our calling. You see, not only is this um, sacred secular division a myth, 
there's another side of the coin that's also a myth. And that is that only pastors and missionaries receive a calling from God. And everybody else just sort of has to muddle along trying to figure out God's will. And I want to say to you that is a horrible lie from the pit of hell. Here in verse 7, God calls all Israel to seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. In thousands of different ways. Thousands of different vocations. Thousands of different gifts and talents and contributions. But what I want you to understand is verse 7 is just a seed. An Old Testament seed uh, pointing to what fully germinates when we come to the New Testament relative to calling. So look how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has, now notice that second to last word, called them. Now if you back up to the second line, those two words, whatever situation in the context of chapter 7, refer to whatever one is doing in one's life, married or single. It refers to one's work in the marketplace. It refers to one's social status, and Paul's point is it's unnecessary to change any of that when you become a Christian, because even prior to your conversion, these were callings from God, your jobs, your station in life, slave or free. Now this word calling that's used near the end of the verse is the same word that God, or that is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe God's calling into a saving relationship with Jesus. But here it refers to you mothers. It refers in the first century to the tradesmen and the teachers and, and, and the shepherds and the soldiers and the farmers and the government workers, all secular jobs. And what Paul is saying in verse 17, all of them have divine callings from the Lord. That's amazing. In other words, just as God calls people to Christ, to reach the world for Christ, so God calls each and every one of us to a wide variety of work. Sometimes we get paid for it, sometimes we don't. A wide variety of life situations to build up the human community, non-Christian or Christian. It's common grace. And by the way, it's why competency matters so much for us as Christians. It's how we seek the peace and prosperity of the city Regardless of how brutal the city is, if you know Jesus Christ, God has called you to seek the peace and prosperity of Chicago. One of the murder capitals of the world. That's why God gives us breath. And you have a calling. Every bit as important as mine. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about two callings. The first is a vocational calling. That's in Jeremiah 29, 1 Corinthians 7. We're called to seek the peace and prosperity through our work. 
of the people around us. The second is a calling as a Christian to make disciples. That's the, the great commission. And if you get this, if you get this dual calling all of us have, that your life and work is service to seek the peace and prosperity of others that doesn't end with retirement, then that will liberate you to experience a fulfillment and a, a, a joy and a meaning in life and in the marketplace because it delivers you from the self-centeredness and the narcissism that is rampant in our culture, rampant in the marketplace, and frankly, rampant in our view of retirement today. And you retirees have so much to offer. So you moms, uh, you dads, uh, you students, singles, you can have a wonderful quiet time each and every day of your life. But it, 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 if that doesn't lead you into self-sacrificial engagement with others, if, if it doesn't change how you, you treat people, then something is desperately wrong. Wrong. Our calling is to serve. It's Jeremiah 29, verse 7. We are priests. 1 Peter 2, 9. You moms, you are priests in your home. Uh, you are pastors. You are, you are missionaries. You are missionaries to the unreached people group called your kids. What an incredible opportunity. I love the way one stay-at-home mother put this. Look what she says. I am socializing four homo sapiens into the dominant values of the Judeo-Christian tradition in order that they might be instruments for the transformation of the social order into the kind of eschatological utopia that God willed from the beginning of creation. And what do you do? <laughs> I mean, really? Now, building on what I said last week about the church, your home, moms, it's not a cruise ship where you offer unlimited luxuries to your kids as you retreat from the world, but it's not a battleship either where there's constant conflict and argument and, and war. No, the, the metaphor is your home is an aircraft carrier. Why? Because your role as mom and dads is to launch fighter jets. Your children are fighter jets. Loaded not with bombs, but good works and the gospel that they might go into the world and change it. In Psalm 127 that I cited in our parent dedication, uh, the metaphor is arrows. Arrows is an Old Testament way of saying your children are fighter jets. So moms, I want to say two things in light of this. First of all, as mothers, be creative. Use your imagination in your parenting. Creativity and imagination is key to vocation. Uh, but, but think of what this means with your children, how important it is. 
so be creative and use your imagination. Help, help your kids, for example, to see God in nature. Help them to understand the power of metaphor. Uh, winter is a picture of death. Spring is a, a, a picture of spiritual life. And unless we die to ourselves, we're not going to live for Christ. Uh, help your uh, children. Uh, I- I- encourage them uh, to take risks for the kingdom of God. I mean risks. Uh, measured risks uh, for the kingdom. Help moms, help your children to see that they are blank checks for Jesus. Talk to them about that. Ask them about how Jesus wants to fill that in. You see yourself as a blank check. Talk about how to serve as a a family, the underprivileged in in our community, the needs in this great city. And, and, And then do it. Help your children to experience missions. If they're in middle school, high school, we have incredible mission trips for your students. Uh, help your kids to imagine their future, to, to think about it uh, to the, in light of the strengths that God has given them, the passions God has given them. Help them to get a picture of what it would look like in their school if, if they stood up for Jesus Christ, if a bunch of kids started standing up for Christ. Uh, think with them create, uh, creatively about how to reach your neighbors with the gospel. Use your imagination. Be creative. Eric and Becca are a young couple in our church that I just happen to love. Eric sits next to me every Sunday. He's on our staff, and his responsibility, among others, is to make sure our worship services unfold roughly away the way we planned. Now, what you don't know about Eric and his wife, Becca, is that over the last few months, they have taken in three foster care children, all sisters, all under the age of two and a half. And we love, you guys stand up. Becca's holding the youngest. We love you guys and so appreciate. Turn around so everybody can see you guys. Now, it's this kind of creativity. How can we make a difference? It's this kind of imagination. What can we do? You talk about being all in. You talk about the the need for competency, uh, service, sacrifice. I mean, where is it more significant than in the home? Moms, God has given you a a divine, sacred calling. Be creative. Use your imagination so that the arrows in your family do not merely point inward. The second thing I want to say to you moms is avoid like the Zika virus the trap of Jesus plus X equals happiness. Jesus plus the behavior of my kids The success of my kids equals happiness. Avoid that. It's a lie. 
It's a, it's a seduction. The lie is Jesus plus anything, whether it's money or success, or the right marriage, or the right boyfriend, the right relationship, fill in the blank. The lie is uh, Jesus plus anything equals happiness. That is nothing but blatant idolatry. It's taking a good thing, the behavior of your kids, and turning it into an ultimate thing. And frankly, you can't control the behavior of your kids in a final sense. You moms, be a model in your family of Jesus Christ being enough, period. Enough. Now, takeaway number three, and I'll go through this one quickly. What Jeremiah 21, 29 rather does remarkably is it elevates humility in our as we go into the world and as we go into the marketplace. We're talking humility in the marketplace. And you say, how do you see that? Well, think about it. Who are often the most humble people in a given culture? The refugees, the immigrants, the exiles. The Jerusalem mentality is, I got all the answers. It's this Christian superiority thing that the world hates. That we just somehow come across as superior. It's come and listen, come and see, I'm, I'm a Christian. And it becomes all about you and it's arrogance. The exilic mentality is the opposite. It's one of humility, patience, and deference. I'm an outsider. This world isn't my home. The Babylonian captivity was a 70-year curriculum in humility because of Israel's arrogance. There is no full-time ministry, there is no competency, there is no service, there is no creativity apart from humility. Now Jesus was speaking to you mothers when he said this in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle, and here it is, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus is drawing our attention to his humility. Uh, uh, the, the world looks at us and sees our superiority, as I just said, sees our disengagement. And you know what the world labels that? The world labels that as pathetic. Jesus here is drawing attention to his humility. That is not an arrogant thing. Because what Jesus is telling us is without heart renewal that starts with humility, there will be no mothering, no work, and no cultural renewal. It's a heart issue. And it's our arrogance, it's our self-centeredness that is one of the main things that keeps us from seeking the peace and the prosperity of the city. Now, the, the reality is, and I'll end with this, none of us, none of you moms, none of you dads, not a single one of us in here are equal to this. E equal to uh, this role, equal to this, this humility. So the question is, what do we do? Well, we do what Jesus invites us to do. We come to him. Jesus said, come to me. 
We come to Jesus and we keep coming to Jesus each and every day of our lives. I mean, think about it. Jesus left the splendor of heaven to become an exile. He gave up what he deserved to become a refugee, if you will, in order to win for us a forgiveness and a righteousness and eternal peace and prosperity that we do not deserve by dying on the cross. And you say, I don't want to be in exile. I can't be in exile. And Jesus says, come to me. I am the ultimate exile. I am a fellow exile. And I know all about pain and suffering and rejection and sacrifice. So if you are here today, any of you moms, any of you who have never come to Jesus Christ, you have never said yes to Jesus, you have never stopped trusting in your works or this or that and trusted alone in Jesus to be your Savior, I want to invite you to come right now, Mother's Day 2016. Come to Jesus. And if you have, and maybe you did that years ago, the way the Holy Spirit will work in your life and transform you uh, continually into a competent, humble exile is by you looking to Jesus, continuing to come to Jesus, continuing to trust in Jesus, and to be overwhelmed by his love revealed in his suffering for you. Let's pray. Now, if you are here and God, the, the Spirit is speaking to you, I want to invite you to come to Jesus. Thank Him for dying on the cross for your sin. And say yes to Him right now by faith. And invite Him to change your life from the inside out. No one loves you like Jesus. He is your greatest advocate and friend. And God, would you give us all the grace to look at King Jesus, to trust him. Amen.